invite you to take them and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 27, uh, 24 through 27. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. We've been out of Colossians for a few weeks, so as you're turning there, let me remind you of what's going on uh, in this church in the city of Colossae. A group of false teachers has infiltrated this church with a message that minimizes the Lord Jesus. It's good to believe in Christ, the false teachers say, but you've also got to add these other things in order to be saved. You've got to follow these other practices in order to experience the fullness of God's wisdom. It was a subtle message with deadly consequences. The false teachers opposed the gospel by minimizing Christ. So Paul writes this letter, and his goal is to confirm in the hearts of the Colossians the absolute centrality and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the theme we've been looking at through the first part of this chapter. But as we come to verse 24 this morning, we find Paul heading in what might appear to be a new direction. Having reminded the Colossians of the supremacy of Christ, Paul now does something unexpected. He starts talking about himself and his ministry as an apostle. He'll talk about himself starting in verse 24 until chapter 2, verse 5. And while at first it might sound like Paul is changing the subject or even missing the point, he's not. He's actually continuing on with the same theme. And as we'll see today, even the specifics of Paul's own life and ministry serve to highlight this one grand truth, the glory and sufficiency of of Christ. So it might sound like there's a little bit of a difference here, but really Paul is still on this same theme as we're going to see. So with that reminder in view, let's give our attention now to this very personal but also very challenging section of Paul's letter. You can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your help now that You would illuminate our hearts and our minds. The the Word of God is clear. The Bible is clear, Father, and yet we still need Your illumination by the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that You would show us, Father, Your grace today. That You would make the Word of God clear and plain to us. And that You would open our minds to understand. And You would open our hearts to believe. And then, Father, that You would open our mouths to witness to Christ. Just as we see here in the life of the Apostle Paul. Father, keep me from error. Make Your Word clear and plain and accurate this morning, we pray, for the good of the church. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the many blessings of reading the Bible together is that it explodes your categories 
for what you think the Christian life should be like. The Bible explodes your categories for what you think the Christian life should be like. We all come to the Christian life with certain assumptions about how things will be. Some of those assumptions are right, but many of them have no basis in the Bible. For example, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. The devil made me do it. I tried that one when I was a kid, but again, it's not in the Bible. This is why it's so important to be regularly hearing God's Word, because we all have certain categories, certain assumptions about the Christian life that honestly need to get blown up. Friends, today's passage is one of those texts that blows things up. The first line of verse 24 challenges so much of what people assume about Christianity. Look again at what Paul says in the first part of verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings. On the surface, that doesn't sound very good. I thought Christianity was about good news. So why would Paul rejoice in suffering? I thought Paul wanted to encourage these Christians. Aren't they being assaulted by false teachers? I thought Paul wanted to encourage them. So why does he put joy and hardship together as though it's something to be expected? Do you see what I mean here? This passage explodes what is often assumed about the Christian life. Far from being his best life now, Paul's joy, at least in part, comes from suffering, he says. Paul's joy, at least in part, comes from the hardships he experiences as a Christian. Now, the question, of course, is why? Why does Paul rejoice in suffering? Well, we should be clear, first of all, that it's not because Paul enjoys the physical experience of suffering. Being shipwrecked or nearly stoned to death are not pleasant things. So Paul's joy is not in the physical experience. What's more, Paul's joy is not because suffering is in and of itself a good thing. Paul's sufferings were the result of living in a fallen world. So his joy is not saying that those things were somehow good and right. Rather, Paul rejoices in his sufferings because he knows there is a greater purpose at work. Paul's sufferings are doing something, in other words. They're not meaningless. And you can see a hint of this even there in verse 24. Look at it again. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, but then don't miss the next phrase, for your sake. You see? Paul believed that what he endured for the Gospel was somehow being used by God for the good of the church. Paul's sufferings were somehow advancing God's work of bringing glory to Christ. And that's why Paul rejoices. Because he knows that there is this greater, we could even say a divine purpose, at work in all of his afflictions. Friends, this is why Paul begins to talk about himself in this verse and for the next several verses. This is why he's describing his own ministry. Because he wants the Colossians to understand that suffering for Christ should not cause them to question the Gospel, 
but instead should encourage them to hold fast to the Gospel. You see, that's really the pastoral takeaway of this entire section, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is not patting himself on the back. He's not trying to put his own ministry in the limelight. No, Paul's aim is to call Christians to imitate his example because in enduring suffering, he's imitating Christ. More specifically, you can think of this passage as presenting two ways that the Gospel calls believers to live. Two ways that the Gospel calls believers to live. Number one, the Gospel calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. And number two, the Gospel calls us to take hope in our union with Christ. Let's look at each of those more closely. Beginning with how the Gospel calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. We've already noted the first surprising element in verse 24. How Paul rejoices in his sufferings. But if you were listening closely when we read, then you'll know that is not the only surprising thing about this opening verse. Rejoicing in suffering is one thing, but Paul's explanation of what that means is downright shocking. Notice Paul's next statement. Verse 24. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church. Friends, that would be an incredible statement to read anywhere, and we read it in the Bible, no less. You can imagine someone reading Colossians for the first time and doing a double take when they come to verse 24. Wait a second, Paul. What did you say? You're filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could this possibly mean? Well, it helps to begin with what Paul does not mean. From the start, we know that Paul does not mean there is something lacking in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Paul is not saying that Jesus' blood was somehow deficient and therefore we have to add something in order to make it effective. We know without a doubt Paul is not saying such a thing because such a thing would be blasphemy. How do we know Paul is not saying that? Because of what he just said in the first 23 verses of the letter. Remember friends, this entire opening chapter has been about one grand truth that Christ is supreme and sufficient to save. There's nothing to add to the Gospel. When we've seen it time and time again, just here in chapter 1, believers have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, verse, saints in light, verse 12. It's a past tense, completed work that cannot be undone. What's more, believers have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own beloved Son, verse 13. Again, past tense, completed once and for all. Even still, Paul stresses again that believers have been reconciled to God through the body and blood of Christ. Verse 21, same thing. Past tense, completed, finished. You don't have to do it again. There is nothing lacking in the work of Christ. There's nothing that needs to be added to the blood of Jesus. Indeed, how could there be anything to add to the work of Christ when Paul has made clear that Jesus has no rivals? He is the firstborn of all creation, verse 15, which means He rules over the universe. He's the firstborn among the dead, verse 18, meaning His resurrection guarantees the resurrection of His people. 
And He is the One in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 19, how can the fullness of God be deficient in any way? You heard it when Daniel prayed. It can't be deficient. By definition, Jesus Christ lacks nothing because He is God. By definition, Jesus is sufficient to save because He is supreme in every single way. So, when Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, we can know with certainty that he is not saying anything about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Even so, the question remains, doesn't it? We said what Paul doesn't mean, but what does he mean? Well, there's a scene from the book of Revelation of all places that helps explain Paul's point. You may remember it in Revelation chapter 6. Those who have been martyred for their faith in Revelation 6, they come before God and they ask God how long it will be until He brings judgment on the earth. Do you remember that scene? The martyrs come to God. They long for justice. They long for Christ's second coming in power. And so they ask the sovereign God, how long, O Lord? And God's response is striking. God tells the martyrs to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters should be completed. What we should take from this is that God, in His wisdom, has a particular defined amount of suffering that must be experienced before the end will come. The martyrs of Revelation 6 are a specific example of a general truth. God has determined a particular defined amount of suffering that must be experienced before the end will come. That's why God tells them in Revelation 6 to rest a little bit longer. There's more hardship, more affliction, more distress that must be endured in the cause of of the Gospel. Here's the key for understanding Paul's point in verse 24. Who will bear that suffering? Who will endure those afflictions? Not the Lord Jesus, who has ascended again into heaven, but the Lord Jesus' body, the church. Jesus doesn't endure those defined set of sufferings that God has said must happen before the end. His people do. Think about Paul's own life and ministry. It was costly to take the Gospel to Ephesus, to Philippi, to Lystra and Derbe and Rome and Thessalonica. Read through the book of Acts. It was costly. In order for the Gospel to reach those places, someone had to suffer. Someone had to be shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and thrown into prison. Who endured all of those things? If I could be so bold, not Jesus, Paul. Paul endured them. As a member of Christ's body, he shared in Christ's sufferings. And in doing so, Paul supplied what was lacking in order for the Gospel to spread. Paul filled up what was lacking in order for the church to grow. So we could put it in this perhaps overly simplistic statement. There is a cost for the Gospel to spread and that cost must be paid by Christ's body, the church. As we share in Christ's sufferings, we supply what God has determined to be necessary 
for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel. Now, at this point, I'm sure someone is thinking, yes, Jeff, I understand the logic of what you're saying here, but Paul was unique. Right? I mean, even verse 25 speaks to this. Paul was an apostle with a unique stewardship from God. We're not apostles. So shouldn't we say that this kind of suffering for the Gospel, shouldn't we say that that was unique to Paul? That's a good question. And on some level, you're right. Paul was unique. His apostolic ministry does not carry over to us. There are no more apostles. It was Paul's calling to bear the cost to take the Gospel to Ephesus and Philippi and Rome. And Paul had to physically bear it in his own body. So yes, on some level, Paul was certainly unique. And he's not like us on some level. But on the other hand, I'd like for you to consider a few passages from some of Paul's other letters. These all come from Paul's own hand. And I want you to listen for how Paul expects his life to be viewed by other Christians. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.8 and 10 I have suffered the loss of all things so that I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. And then just a few verses later, verse 17, Philippians 3. Brothers, join in imitating Me. And then Philippians 1, 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and still have. So, is Paul unique? Certainly. But is Paul's life also teaching us something about the Christian life? Absolutely. To belong to the body of Christ is to share in the sufferings of Christ. And friends, you can't have one without the other. To belong to the body of Christ is to share in the sufferings of Christ. This is part of the Gospel's call. When you embrace the Gospel by grace through faith, you are in a real sense joining the Lord Jesus on the road of suffering. Again, our suffering is not redemptive and it doesn't atone for anyone's sin, least of all our own. And yet, our suffering for Christ is essential for the Gospel mission of the church. Apart from Christ's body bearing the cost, the Gospel will not spread. Now, can God just say, spread? Yes, but that's not what He's going to do. He has determined to work through means. And the means He has determined to work through are you and I. We have to see this or we're not going to get this text. As we endure affliction for Christ, we participate in God's purpose of seeing the Gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Or to use Paul's language that is somewhat shocking but makes the point, we supply what is lacking. And that's where I'd like to pause for just a moment with you. We've done some hard theological thinking for several minutes. But here I just I want to consider what this means for you and me in the present. Every Christian in this room has been entrusted with the gospel. 
And that means every Christian in this room has been tasked with seeing the Gospel spread. This is how Christ receives the glory that He deserves. As His people, in every walk of life, proclaim the Gospel for the salvation of the lost. If you belong to Christ today, this is your calling. Whatever your position or season in life, you are entrusted with the Gospel. And therefore, every Christian in this room should be prepared to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Every Christian should be ready to experience affliction in the work of the Gospel. As the body of Christ, this is how we share in Christ's sufferings. We faithfully endure hardship for the sake of His name. We join Paul in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you prepared to suffer for Christ, brothers and sisters? That's the question that we have to ask. Are you prepared to suffer for Christ? Even today, right now, is your heart convinced that Jesus is worth the cost? Listen, one of the best ways to be prepared is to recognize ahead of time that suffering will come. The Apostle Peter in chapter 4 of his first letter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Get ready, in other words. Expect this because it's part of the Gospel mission. Are you prepared? Compared to our brothers and sisters around the world, the church in our country does not yet know how painful such suffering can be. I read a report recently, some of you probably saw it, about a a faithful, like-minded church with us in China whose leaders were suddenly arrested on a Sunday morning and their building was then raided and boarded up shut. All their leaders get arrested. They're all gone. Do you know what they did the next Sunday, that church? Do you know what they did the next Lord's Day? They met outside in the park across the street from their building where the police promptly showed up and arrested dozens more. Why would that church meet outside for worship considering that they knew full well many of them were going to jail? Why would they meet outside and do that? Because they understood what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 1. Because they understood that to carry out the cause of the Gospel, Christ's people must share in His sufferings. You might be thinking, that's communist China. That would never happen in the West. Right now, in the country of the Netherlands, 250 Evangelical pastors are facing criminal charges for signing a statement that I signed two months ago. The same statement. And all that statement says is what the church has believed for 2,000 years about gender and sexuality. And there is a very good chance those pastors are going to jail. The church in our country does not yet know that level of suffering. But the day may come when we will. And this passage is calling us to be prepared to recognize ahead of time the cost of gospel mission. Religious liberty is a wonderful privilege, friends. It's the first freedom in America. And yet it is a blip on the radar of the history of the church. It's not normal. We should be prepared. We should recognize ahead of time. That's the urging of this text. Be ready. 
What's more, while we may not face imprisonment for the gospel, there is also this kind of suffering that results in the loss of job, or the loss of reputation, or being ostracized, or the loss of relationships. Are those things as hard as going to prison? No. But it's not our calling to determine the level of hardship we face. It is our calling to face it faithfully, whatever that level might be. You don't get to pick. God picks. And then you endure it faithfully. So again, are we ready, brothers and sisters? Are you ready? The glorious Christ whom we studied in verses 15-20, to is He your confidence and your hope? The glorious Gospel that we celebrated in verses 21-23, to is that good news, your heartbeat, and your commitment in life? As Paul's ministry here is reminding us, the Gospel calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so as we consider this text, the question that confronts us time and again is are we prepared to do so? These are weighty matters, aren't they? If you're feeling a heaviness as you listen to this sermon, that's good. These are serious considerations. And yet, as we transition to verse 25 and following, we find that in the midst of that heaviness, there is a reason to be hopeful. This is the kindness of God, friends. That in the midst of such weighty matters, the Lord gives us also a reason to be hopeful. The Gospel calls us to share in Christ's sufferings, but that's not the end. As Paul's ministry reminds us, the Gospel also also calls us to take hope in our union with Christ. The Gospel also calls us to take hope in our union with Christ. In verse 25, Paul begins to speak of his calling to serve as a minister of the church. Notice again what he says, verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. So Paul's life is defined by his divine calling to take the Gospel to the Gentiles. And that calling means fundamentally that Paul is a servant of the church. That's what the word minister means here. It means that Paul serves for the sake of Christ's body. Notice also that word stewardship. You see it there in verse 25? The word stewardship. Paul's point is that the church does not belong to him. The church belongs to God. The church is God's creation. And as a minister of the Gospel, Paul serves the church on God's behalf. You see, the church doesn't belong to Paul just as any church today does not belong to any pastor or minister. The church belongs to God. We would do well to remember that each and every day that we walk into this room. The church belongs to God. And therefore, the call to Gospel ministry is fundamentally a call to steward something that doesn't belong to you. (laughs) Belongs to someone else. It's a call to sacrificial service for the sake of the church. You'll also notice that at the heart of Paul's ministry to the church is the Word of God. Did you catch that there at the end of verse 25? What's the purpose of Paul's stewardship? End of 25. To make the Word of God fully known. You see, Paul's ministry was essentially word-driven. He was called to serve the church, and he did so by proclaiming the whole counsel of God. In fact, Paul would say there is no ministry apart from the Word. If you take the Word of God out of the center of ministry, then you fail in your stewardship 
You may be doing lots of other things, and some of those things may be good, but you're not doing the ministry according to the Bible. You're not following the apostles' example of serving the church. Paul's stewardship is to make the Word of God fully known. Friends, before we go on, I I hope we see here the reminder of why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. We read the Bible, we sing songs rooted in the Bible, we pray from the Bible, and we preach the Bible. Why do we do those things? Are we trying to fill some niche in the church market? No. Are we trying to tap into some trend in church ministry? I hope not, because we must have picked the wrong trend if we are. No, we're, we're doing these things because this is how the apostles carried out their work on the basis of God's Word, just as God called them to do. This is what God says makes the ministry a reality. It's the proclamation of the Word of God making it fully known. As we come to verse 26, Paul tells us what it means to make the Word of God fully known. And he does so by using this important term, mystery. Notice again what Paul writes, verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. It's critical at this point that we understand when Paul says mystery, he's not talking about something we have to figure out ourselves. In fact, it's just the opposite. Mystery in the New Testament is a divine truth that we cannot know unless God first reveals it to us. In fact, you hear the elements of that in verse 26, don't you? This mystery was hidden for ages, Paul says, but now it's been revealed to the saints. Revealed by whom? Revealed by God. So this is Paul's work of making the Word of God fully known. He has been tasked with proclaiming the mystery that God has now revealed. Of course, that raises the next question. You can see how Paul's texts, they move very systematically here. And there's just kind of question after question. He's a steward to do what? Make the Word of God fully known. What's that? It's the mystery that God has revealed. What's that? What's the mystery? Well, in verse 27, Paul gives us the answer. And it's here, finally, that we get the reason for hope. Notice again what Paul writes, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is this mystery that Paul is called to proclaim? It's nothing less than God's plan to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. That both Jews and Gentiles are saved by being united to Christ in faith. That plan was determined by God before the foundation of the world as Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted themselves together to redeem a fallen humanity. That plan was anticipated under the Old Covenant as Christ was foreshadowed in types and predicted through the prophets. But only now, through the New Covenant Gospel, has that full revelation of the plan been made known to the church. That's the mystery now revealed to the saints. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see, this is how Paul makes the Word of God fully known. He does so by proclaiming Christ. But there's a little more to this mystery that we need to understand. You may have noticed that Paul uses a unique phrase here in verse 27. He says the mystery is Christ in you. 
If you're familiar with Paul's letters, then you know he typically speaks of believers being in Christ. But here he says that it's Christ in you. Why does he flip them? Why the shift? Well, think of the context of the letter. The Colossians are under siege by the false teachers who are urging them to add something to the Gospel. You need something else, the false teachers claim. You're lacking. You're insufficient. You don't have everything you need spiritually. So what does Paul do? He spends verse after verse teaching them about the unrivaled, unsurpassed, all-sufficient, supreme glory of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, that Christ is in you. That Christ that I just proclaimed to you, that one is in you. How could you lack anything spiritually if the image of the invisible God dwells in you? How could you need anything else if the One who holds all things together has united Himself to you in the Gospel? You see, friends, this is the great wonder of the Gospel. It's not merely that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies or fits Old Testament types. It's that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, unites Himself to sinners. That Jesus Christ unites Himself to His people and then fully represents them before the Father. At the heart of the Gospel is this union between Christ and those whom He saves. So that what is true of Him is now true of us. And because of that union with Christ, believers have the hope of glory, Paul says, verse 27. The hope of glory. Believers have hope of being fully conformed to the image of Christ. And then forever dwelling in the presence of God. That's the glory in view here. Being like Jesus and being with the Father. Think about what this means just here in this paragraph. No matter how difficult it might be to share in the sufferings of Christ, believers have this confidence, this assurance that the end will be glory. Those brothers and sisters who were arrested in China for, wor for worshiping Christ out in the open, as they took them away in handcuffs, they could know with certainty, my future is glory, regardless of what this world will do to me. We can gladly give our lives away for the sake of the Gospel because we know with certainty that our future is glory with Christ. The Gospel calls us to share in Christ's sufferings. And at the same time, the Gospel tells us that we have hope because we are united with the living Christ. In fact, you have to keep those two realities together. Suffering with Christ and union with Christ. You have to keep those two realities together in order to understand and apply this text. I asked us earlier, are you prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ? That's the question we have to answer. And yet, there's still this thought, isn't there? How do we do that? How can I get ready to share in Christ's sufferings? Friends, it's only by embracing the hope that we have through our union with Christ. Do you see it? It's when we recognize that Christ is in us and therefore we have the certain hope of glory. You see, you've got to keep the two together. When I know that Christ cannot be taken away from me, or even better, when I know that I cannot be taken away from Christ, then and only then, I'll be ready to lay down all that I have for the sake of His name. 
we share in Christ's sufferings by taking hope from our union with Christ. That was Paul's testimony, and he is calling us to make that our testimony as well. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. What an incredible statement that explodes so much of what we assume about Christianity. Paul rejoices in what he has endured. And here at the end, we, we finally have the answer why he rejoices. Paul rejoices because suffering with Christ is the pathway to glory with Christ. Please don't miss that as we close. I imagine, I hope that this is some sanctified imagination, I imagine that this is what sustained Paul through the shipwrecks and the beatings and the long nights in prison. Those things, Paul was a real human being, remember. He's not a superhero. He's a real person. Shipwrecked, beaten, thrown into prison, whipped, falsely accused, his life threatened. How did he keep going? With each moment of suffering, I imagine Paul saying to himself, this is how the Lord Jesus entered His glory as well, through suffering. And in that thought, in that surprising connection of suffering and glory, Paul rejoices. Not because his suffering is good in and of itself, and not because suffering is pleasant. No, Paul rejoices because suffering with Christ is the pathway to glory with Christ. Just as Jesus took up the cross, suffered, and then received His glory, so also, friends, the church is called to take up the cross, suffer with Christ, emboldened by this promise, this assurance of the glory that is to come. We have been entrusted with the Gospel. And in order to see it spread, we must be ready, friends, to endure what Christ endured. May God make us a faithful church brothers and sisters, a church that witnesses to Christ. And oh, how I pray that our joy would be that the sufferings of this life are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory with the Lord Jesus Himself that is beyond compare. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes to see and open our hearts to embrace this wonderful truth that Christ is in His people and therefore His people have hope of glory. And then seeing that truth, Father, and embracing it by faith and standing upon it and being strengthened by it, would You help us to share in Christ's sufferings? Would You help us to take up the cause of the Gospel and imitate Paul even as he imitates Christ and endure all things, God, for the sake of the elect? Would You help us, God? Please come and make our church a faithful witness to this Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.